Gresham College presents Our Marble Tribute by Dr. Anne Saunders, MBE and FSA. Within three days, we are going to be celebrating the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar. And I'm curious, curious to see whether it will receive as much publicity in the newspapers as the horse trading, which is going on at the moment, over the Tory leadership. But be that as it may, what I'm going to try to talk to you tonight about is a long-term permanent memorial, not just of the Battle of Trafalgar, though that certainly comes into the story, but of the whole of those long wars fought against France and Napoleon. Those are the monuments in St. Paul's Cathedral. Large, white, massive, solid stone monuments. And I think I got emotionally involved almost with them a good 40 years ago. I'd known St. Paul's, of course, as a child. One was taken there. But it was immediately after the war. I was deputy librarian, which sounds a very grand title, but it wasn't. What I was mostly doing was washing the floors and cleaning the shelves and then frantically trying to retitle books that were having to be rebound and I'd got to get my Latin correct because people who knew far, far more than I did were on the committee and were going to inspect the backs of the books and woe betide me if I'd got anything not agreeing with anything else. And I had to go to and fro and to and fro to St. Paul's. And I began to notice that visitors to the cathedral looked at these huge stone monuments at which a lot of a good many of which we should be looking at as soon as I get round to the lantern slides and giggling and laughing and sniggering and pointing and thinking that they were terribly funny well when you really look at them some of them are a bit funny I, I will entirely grant that but I began to feel very, very strongly that they deserved more respect than they were getting. And then some, some years later, when I'd turned into the Borough Archivist at St. Marylebone, I received a cache of documents. This was the 1950s, and lawyers were turning out their offices energetically, and floods of documents and deeds and letters and things were coming into our local archive centers. And I saw, realized that some of them related to a sculptor called John Bacon who lived and worked in Newman Street near the Tottenham Court Road off Oxford Street. And I realized that he had done three of the four first monuments to come into the, into the cathedral and that his son had done others. And I continued to look harder and harder. And I started to collect, you know, I had a little box that I dropped notes into. 
and I wrote myself down references and it began to build up and I got to a point where I almost thought I'd like to write a book about them, but I never have. What I have written is the relevant section, half of a chapter in the great big book on St. Paul's, which came out last year for the 1400th anniversary of the consecration of the cathedral. Now, if we're going to talk about sculpture in St. Paul's, we have to go back to Wren. Wren did not put any sculpture in St. Paul's. There were a few small memorials down in the crypt, but there was nothing upstairs in the nave. I think that he was far too busy designing the cathedral to worry about a little thing like commemorating anyone who might happen to be buried there or <clears throat> to deserve commemoration there. And after they got the cathedral finished, nobody talked about memorials for quite a while. In the middle of the 18th century, there was a suggestion that a particular Lord Mayor should be commemorated, but the Dean said very firmly, the then Dean said very firmly indeed, no, if Sir Christopher had meant to have mem uh, memorials, he would have designed some. And then it was discovered that the Lord Mayor had been a slightly dodgy character, um, so the matter was dropped. But it was raised again towards, uh, at almost the end of the 18th century because there was a man, and I must begin with these first four memorials, even though they're not connected with the wars. There was a man called John Howard. Now, you all of you know the name. He was the one who was so passionately keen on, no, we don't need the slides yet. I don't want them to get overheated. I'm going to talk for a minute or two first. Uh, a man called John Howard, the man who was concerned with prison reform. And even in his own lifetime, they came to him and said, oh, we must put a statue up to you. We really have got to say what you're doing and pay you tribute somewhere or other and, you know, show how much we appreciate what you're doing. And like Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, he simply said, no, don't waste your money on anything of the sort. Spend it on something that really matters. Prince Albert said, I would be thoroughly embarrassed if I had to ride past a statue of myself in Hyde Park or anywhere else in London. I don't know if Howard said exactly that, but he said something rather similar. He didn't want a statue. Thank you very much. However, when he died, far away in the Ukraine, still intent on his investigations into prisons and prison conditions, he couldn't really object to them raising memorial. And immediately there was a suggestion. Alderman Boydell, who's worth a lecture in himself if you've never had one, who ran the Shakespeare Gallery in Paul Mall was the chairman of the committee, and it was whispered that if proper application were made, then 
they would be quite willing to have a memorial to John Howard in St. Paul's itself. He had done so much for the well-being of people in general. Even though he was a non-conformist, the Church of England felt very strongly that that was immaterial. So proper application was made and a committee was got together with quite a lot of royal academicians on it and the clergy of the cathedral and money was raised and they decided that they were going to erect to Howard a monument seven feet eight inches high on a seven foot pedestal and they chose John Bacon, an eminent sculptor, to do it. Bacon was very happy at the idea. He was a strong nonconformist himself. He approved of Howard. He was a person with a very strong social conscience. And I think, though I can't prove this, that what he wanted to do was to do a larger version of a sculpture that he had done, completed a year or two before. Yes, I would now be deeply grateful for a lantern slide which he had um, carved in memory of Thomas Guy, the founder of the hospital. And you can still see it today if you go to the chapel in Guy's hospital and look at the memorial that's there. Now, you can see what it is. Thomas Guy... Yes, he's wearing aldermanic robes, but otherwise he's in perfectly conventional dress, is raising up a sick man by the hand, and the head and neck and shoulders of the sick man, I think, are a very impressive piece of sculpture. In fact, Bacon repeated them for his gift piece when they elected him an academician, and he's taking the poor wretch by the hand in order to lead him into the hospital, which you can see in the background in very low relief. Let's see if this thing will work. And you can see the steps into the hospital and somebody else is being carried in on a stretcher. Bacon was a master of carving the real essence of, the, of, of a scene in low relief in the background. And I think... Bacon always felt this is one of the best things I've ever done and it's a tribute to a good man. However, not long after, the committee met again, the sculptors and the clergy and Bacon himself was meant to be there but he arrived late for the committee meeting which is a reminder to all of us that we should never go late to a committee meeting. Because when he got there, he found that the plans were changed. He was told he had got to make a single figure, that it would be quite adequate if it just said uh, John Howard, reformer of prisons. It didn't need a, uh, a scene, uh, a second figure to describe what Howard did. Just a single figure would be perfectly adequate. Bacon protested. He was never reconciled to it but he had to put up with it. And this is what he carved. Next slide. Oh, no, I, I'm, I've got the contraption. Right. Let's make it work. And this is what he carved. I think that probably Howard 
would not have been very happy if he had seen how he was represented. I think that the change in plan may have been because of Sir Joshua Reynolds. Now, Sir Joshua Reynolds had a great friend, Dr. Johnson, you know, the man who did the dictionary and wrote so much. And Johnson had died back in 1784, and he'd been buried in St. Paul's, and there was a memorial to him there. But as soon as Reynolds realized that there were going to be memorials in St. Paul's Cathedral, that was enough for him. He could not bear that his dear friend Johnson shouldn't be commemorated there too. And he was obviously convinced that if Howard was represented by two figures, then if Johnson only had one figure, it would be less impressive, and so he swung the committee. And since everybody was terribly respectful of Sir Joshua Reynolds, he got his way. However, I would just, in spite of the fact, now I'm going the wrong way, in spite of the fact that Howard is not at all the, original, the sculptor's original idea, I mean, here you've got him in a sort of Greek tunic, kicking fetters aside and stepping forward with a large key on his, in his hands to unlock the prisons and under his arm a whole sheaf of plans for prison reform and better architecture and so on and so forth. Yet at least he managed to convey what he wanted to convey in the low relief at the bottom. And if you go down, bend a bit, or even go on your knees and look at it when you're in St. Paul's, you can see that we have, here's Howard coming into the prison. He's still in classical garb, but he's gesticulating in a kindly manner towards a prisoner. A warder, or a helper rather, is coming in with a huge tray of at least bread and water to feed the poor wretches, some of whom will not have done anything very dreadful. And here, and I'm afraid you, you've got to take this on trust, the slide is the best I could do, but it's not, quite, it's not good enough. You've got a warder with a key opening the door, I think it's got too hot, to let everybody out or at any rate, those who are letable out. Well, then this meant that poor, wretched Bacon was being driven at by two different committees. Hurry up, get it done. We want ours in first. Um, the Haroldian committee got a guarantee from him that theirs would be um, unveiled first, but the two statues were unveiled within a couple of weeks of each other. And so, Dr. Johnson. Now, Dr. Johnson is represented by a single figure. He would never have looked in the least like that in his life. He did not go around in a Roman toga, but he's being represented as an ancient philosopher 
and the rather curious, ungainly pose that you've got there. He's resting his head on his hand and stretching across himself to open a scroll. I think it's not Bacon's, it's not Bacon's idea at all. I think we've got Sir Joshua Reynolds here again. Another engraving of it. They published it in the Gentleman's Magazine and the European Magazine, which were the periodicals of the day. Oh, yes, and Bacon got hold of this bust by Nollikins in order to get a good likeness of Johnson. I think he was looking at first some, uh, uh, some sculptures in the British Museum, which had already, of course, opened. But I think that what they were going on, what Reynolds was going on, was this painting of Heraclitus from uh, Raphael's enormous School of Athens painting in the Sala de la Segnatura in Rome. Bacon was, we've got a charioteer here. I think there's a, a thought of that also in the draperies. Bacon was satisfied with his work on Johnson. He wrote to his wife um, and son that he had managed to get, and he, he then published a letter about it, saying that he had managed to convey, he hoped, uh, something of the firmness, the solidity of Johnson's principles. He was never happy about the single figure of Howard. There's a very nice 19th century story of an Italian visitor to St. Paul's deciding that he had better do obeisance to the two figures because he thought that Howard with the key was St. Peter and that um, Johnson on the other side was St. Paul. Well, then Bacon got another commission, which I'm only just going to touch on, which was a memorial to a jurist, Sir William Jones, who had been high ju judge, in the court, uh, judge of the High Court out in Calcutta in India. And he had gone out there and he had codified Indian law. Once again, it's an unlikely classical pose, figure. But if you look in the bas relief, you've got two figures representing knowledge and enlightenment coming to India and impertinence of it uh, bringing enlightenment. But in the center, you've got a dear little Indian goddess holding reverently a figure of Brahma, and in behind her is a seven-headed horse and some rather, you know, he obviously, Bacon had obviously got hold of somebody who knew something about India, and he was trying to convey it. Do go in and look at that lower part of the sculpture. Well, then the fourth figure under the dome went to Sir Joshua Reynolds himself, a very plain and solid and very sober 
and not Baroque at all figure by John Flaxman, but by that time, before that was com the, the Reynolds figure was completed, war with France had broken out. Revolutionary France declared war on England, 1st of February 1793, and things were in heavy war mode after that. Those wars with France and with Napoleon continued with very scant intermission for 22 years. The conflict would be fought not only across the European landmass from Portugal to the steppes of Russia, but north to south from Copenhagen down to Italy and across the oceans to Egypt, the West Indies, America, Canada, Ceylon, and Nepal. During those wars, the government voted and paid for 33 marble memorials to the nation's heroes. All but two, those were in Westminster Abbey, came to St. Paul's, and expenditure totaled, and I take it from the official papers, 110,000 575, 110,000. Well, I looked up the historian's reckoning of inflation to get back to what something was worth in 1805, you've got to multiply by roughly 30. Whether but personally, I don't think you can ever make guesses like that uh, because values vary so much and over two centuries, unimaginably. But it gives you some idea that this was the government really laying out on works of art because these were felt to be the right way in which to appreciate and commemorate and honour somebody. Well, the first three memorials were to Captain Robert Faulkner, Major General Thomas Dundas, and Captain Richard Rundle Burgess. The sculptors commissioned were John Charles Felix Rossi, the younger John Bacon, and Thomas Banks. And the election of um, sculptors was made by the Royal Academy. Now, Faulkner was an amazingly, intensely popular hero. He was in the command of the Blanche in an engagement with the French off the West Indies right at the beginning of the war, 5th of January, 1795, and the bowsprit of his little ship, La Pique, came athwart, um, or, sorry, the bowsprit of La Pique, who was a fair-sized French vessel, it swung across Faulkner's vessel, the Blanche, and he seized it, lashed it to the capstan, thereby bringing the two ships, the two vessels, up close side by side with each other, converting the side of his ship into an amazingly solid, appalling battery, full-scale battery. His intrepidity caught the imagination of the nation, 
And they promptly, the following summer, I mean, this, this happened in January. By summer, there was a one-act opera being given, commemorating him with his action in the battle, lashing the bit of the French ship to his own capstan, uh, being the absolute climax of it, you know, the thunder of the guns. Not quite sure how they organized it all, but it was given a lot of times, so it must have been pretty popular. Dundas's end was less heroic. Let's switch. Go back to Faulkner in a minute. Dundas was less heroic. He was a brave soldier, a capable governor of Guadeloupe, which had been captured from the French, and he died of fever. When the French retook the island, his body had been exhumed and exposed to wild animals. Parliament answered the insult with a marble memorial. But Burgess, captain of the Ardent, and, uh, was, he was the captain of the Ardent, uh, October 1797, he died breaking the enemy line in action off, in, on, at Camperdown off the Dutch coast. Reaction to these memorials when they were finally installed was a mixed to say the least of it. Banks, who had been supported by the Academy for seven years, had got the commission, uh, and he uh, gave us here to Burgess. He's represented by a portrait head on an idealized heroic body, uh, but he is dressed. I don't think he would ever have appeared on the quarter deck, stark naked, excepting for a cloak flung neglectfully over one shoulder. There's a beautiful coil of rope here, and across it, a winged victory hands him a sword. Um, there was a certain amount of reaction to it. Um, one journalist at the time said that the statue of Burgess cannot fail to command praise. The attitude is fine and the air brave. But um, the other, another paper said it brought the blush of shame to the cheek of modesty. So there was a lot of feeling that this was not what the government should be spending its money on. Similarly, Rossi's group for Faulkner, the one who had got the opera at Covent Garden, was even less successful. A Neptune, seated, twists himself to receive the dying hero in his arms, while victory pops. I mean, you know, she, she doesn't place a wreath on his head. She pops it there. Uh, there was quite a strong reaction to that. And there is today. People really don't get it. If you're going to get it, oh, yes, uh, a watercolor of the period, um, very amateur, but showing the fatally wounded Faulkner collapsing onto the, uh, I think, onto the capstan. 
and surrounded by his sorrowing sailors and brother officers. It was obviously something that really, you know, caught the imagination. And it isn't until you stand yourself quietly in the nave, south nave, in St. Paul's, and take the time to read the inscription, the detail of the action, that you see why people were so excited about it. Well, the government felt worried. Were artists the right people to be choosing the sculptors? Wouldn't it be better to have a government committee? Wouldn't it be better to have people who really knew something seriously about art? not just people who practiced it. So they appointed a government committee. And if the actions of the heroes, as reported in dispatches and published in newspapers, are one strand of the story, and their representations by the sculptors, these are the obvious threads, there is a third, almost invisible thread in this rope of a story, and that is the deliberations of the committee. It was first known as the Committee for the Erection of Monuments, and very, very soon began to be spoken of half respectfully, but half mockingly, as the Committee of Taste. And it had very great influence in the art world of the day, as the diary of Joseph Farrington, he was one of the first academicians and he kept an amazing detailed diary where he records, it's, I think it's 14 volumes, and he records every scrap of gossip that you can think of, and it's the sort of thing you find in reference libraries, if you're lucky. I think they've got a set in the Guildhall Library. Now, I'm not going to bother you with a list of the 13, 14, 15 names of those who sat, sat, sat on it at various times. I'll just mention two or three of them to give you a flavor of it. Charles Long, the chairman, he was artist, artistic advisor to both George III and George IV, and they called him the Vitruvius of the age. As backup, he had Sir George Beaumont, who was a very generous man, and it was his collection of paintings that, in effect, started off the National Gallery. There were a lot of other connoisseurs, and I think this... Oh, no, sorry, that's Bacon to Dunder, the poor governor whose body was exposed. Must have got out... This is the one I want. Uh, it's a painting of one of the um, Townley, of Charles Townley. His collection of antique marbles is now in the British Museum. And I think it gives you an idea of what they admired and liked and collected and housed very expensively in their own sculpture and painting galleries. There he is, surrounded by the figures, 
and his friends who are all studying books and looking at things in a very learned manner. And there was also Richard Payne Knight, a very sharp-tongued man whom we're going to meet again in the course of this evening, and who most generously gave his enormous private collection, bequeathed it to the uh, coins and gems and drawings, and he bequeathed them to the British Museum and a lot of others, and including Sir Uvedale Price, who wrote a very celebrated essay on the picturesque. Well, all these men had had a classical education, and most of them made the grand tour. A lot of them had been several times to Italy and even further. They were fellows of the Society of Antiquaries and of the Royal Society, and they, most of them, as I say, had their own collections. The only trouble was that they weren't artists, and I don't think any of them would have had a clue of how to carve a piece of stone. Well, I don't know how the, how the St. Paul's clergy reacted to this. So far, I have not been able to trace any minutes at all for the Committee of Taste, though they must have had one, as they had Robert Gilman, who was the secretary to the British institution, something formed to encourage art in Britain. He was also secretary to the Committee of Taste, but I've never found any minutes. There is no mention of any of the monuments in the chapter records. Either matters were settled by word of mouth or the cathedral clergy, aware of the national emergency, simply accepted that if the government had voted the funds, then it was their patriotic duty to accept the monuments. Perhaps they were proud to become a national Valhalla. The floor plan of the cathedral, given in the 1818 edition of Dugdale, shows the position of each one executed by then and firmly lists those that were still to come. The Reverend Sidney Smith, speaking a generation later, clearly had no taste for the monuments. He was very snappy. I'll tell you what he said later. But the mood was very different in the, harsh, harsh, in the ha harshest of the wartime years. Well, to this committee fell the commissioning of the next four monuments. Tributes to Admiral Lord Howe, Captains Moss and Ryu, Captain George Westcott, and General Sir Ralph Abercrombie. They went through an enormous electro-choosing process. Uh, the sculptors concerned were very fretful about it. The, um, John Flaxman, the one who did Sir Joshua Reynolds, got Howe's monument. And you can see it here. He had been in command of the fleet at the very beginning of the war. Uh, action off Ushant, 1st of June, 1794, the glorious 1st of June, and he had died five years later after a long and distinguished career. Horace Walpole described him as undaunted as a rock and as silent. The Navy called him Black Dick. He was beloved by the sailors, and it was he who had calmed the mutiny at the Nore uh, in the middle of the war. Flax, now look, this is interesting. 
Flaxman shows him in uniform. Uh, he's leaning up against the prow of his ship, the Queen. Britannia sits enthroned on the deck. And history, supported by victory, you can tell her it's a victory because she's got wings. Uh, history is busy inscribing his naval victories and his relief of Gibraltar and his success off Ushant. The memorial was not achieved without difficulty. Flaxman designed it, but the cutting was done by his assistants, and they made Howe's figure disproportionately large, and months of work were spent chipping away to reduce the size and then repolish the marble. Afterwards, Flaxman always insisted on making a full-size model before he began work on the stone. Westcott's monument went to Banks. Ah, oh, sorry, Howe, uh, how, back to Howe again. Um, apologies. He's got a lion down in the corner. And if you ever find you have to take children round St. Paul's Cathedral... You could have a wonderful time having a lion hunt, hunt with them. You know, some of the lions are very docile, like this one. He's a pussycat lion. Some of them are roaring and savage. We'll see a really savage one on Nelson's memorial. But, you, you, you know, you can keep a child going for a long time with the lions. Sorry, that was purely frivolous. Uh, Westcott's memorial went to Banks. Here it is. Now, this is something you've got to look at very carefully because it was found, understandably, if you look at the two ma the main figures on top, to be rather ridiculous. George Westcott was the son of a Devonshire baker. And the story goes that one day the boy had gone to the mill to collect some flour, and the mill wasn't working because one of the ropes had, come, had become snapped and the miller couldn't grind the flour and there was a lot of distress over this. And the boy, he was 12 years old perhaps, said, oh, I can splice that for you. The miller let him have a go because there was no other suggestion. And the child, because even though this was the 18th century, you were still a child when you were 12, even if people did grow up much earlier in some ways. He spliced that rope so that it was as good as new. He got his flower. The miller knew someone in the Navy. And he said, well, if you can splice a rope like that, you ought to be in the Navy. And young George got a place as a cabin boy aged 13. By the time he was 46, he was in command of the Majestic. He was killed at the Battle of the Nile, one of Nelson's victories, on the 1st of August, 1798. One wonders what he would have thought of his memorial, which represents him, too, as semi-naked, as a tunic slipping off one shoulder. He slumps into the arms of a winged victory who literally staggers, 
struggling to crown him with a laurel wreath. It was not the happiest of compositions. But the relief on the pedestal, I beg you to look at it, deserves examination. On the front, you've got a river god. There he is with lots of little tributaries. The river god is the Nile with its tributaries. It's handsomely carved, but it's conventional enough. But on the sides, in very low relief, the sculptor has done something rather remarkable. To the right hand, you've got a ship going aground, but on the left hand, now you've got to look carefully, and I wish the slide were better, but I can't help it. You've got an explosion. You've got the French flagship, the Orient. There was fire, and there was, obviously, the powder was in the hold. Somehow or other, the fire reached the powder and exploded it. And you've got billowing smoke going up and up and up. Look at that carefully. You think of the task of recording in stone the destruction done by an Exorcet missile. Well, I'm going to skip several of them, but we'll get down to another casualty of the landing um, after the Battle of the Nile. We've got 20 minutes, we're getting there. Uh, we'll have a look at Sir Ralph Abercrombie. Now, he died of his wounds from sword and ballot at the ensuing, uh, sword and, sorry, sword and bullet in the ensuing battle, and the commission for his memorial at 6,500, which was a lot of money, multiply by 30 and add quite a bit, went to Richard Westmacott. And it's one of, I think, one of the most individual and spirited in the entire pantheon that we have in St. Paul's. The general, having received the fatal sword thrust, falls from his horse into the arms of a kilted highlander, the horse rears up, about to crush beneath its hooves a naked figure representing the enemy. Flaxman and Rossi both said that Westmacott had never yet achieved a nude figure and that he was de determined to show what he could do. The drama of Abercrombie's death was recorded in paintings and engravings which provide the inspiration for the sculpture, executed years later. But just notice the hero is not in classical garb. He's there in uniform. He's not a classical demigod. Another closer up slide. Oh, and you've got sphinxes on either side to show you that it's all happening in Egypt. Well, the next round of commissions came a few years later after the Battle of Trafalgar, 21st of October, 1805. In addition to Nelson's, memorials were voted to Captain George Duff, commanding the Mars, 
and Captain John Cook of the Bellerophon. The younger John Bacon provided Duff's ta tablet with a magnificently muscled sailor. He's been shifted down to the crypt. You'll have to go and look for him there. Uh, Duff had run away to sea at the age of nine, and he was truly beloved by his crews. His was one of the few ships that remained undisaffected by the Nor mutiny. Cook's was given to Westmacott, and it's... Well, there's our sailor a bit closer. And here is Cook. He's a companion piece to Duff. And Britannia crouches, overwhelmed by sorrow at the loss of so noble a man. One little cherub or putty or whatever tries to comfort her solicitously. The other, I'm afraid, is trying on Minerva's helmet in a slightly naughty manner. Now, the honor of carving Nelson's memorial, a profitable one at another 6,500, went to John Flaxman. He was not allowed to follow his own designs. Um, Farrington has a nice piece. Mr. Knight, that's Richard Payne Knight, the very scratchy one, he mentioned the liberality of Westmacott, who had permitted that Flaxman should adopt some part of his design that he made to Nelson. Flaxman, patient soul, took it very calmly. A week later, he told Rossi he would indeed adapt the sentiment of Westmacott for Lord Nelson's monument, but the composition of the figures would be all his own. He eschewed both the neoclassicism of Banks and the realism of Westmacott's Abercrombie. His Nelson stands calmly beside a coil of rope. There he is on top of the pedestal, a coil of rope down to the side of him. Um, and he's in uniform with all the decorations. You'd better take binoculars with it with you, but he's got all his decorations up there, which were what the French marksman spotted when he got the admiral. Over his shoulder is a magnificent fur pelisse, which was given to him by the senior of Turkey, and this conceals the lack of his right arm. And the absence of the other eye is indicated. It's a lonely figure. I think it conveys the burden of responsibility on the commander and his dedication to his task. Nelson's chief victories are recorded around the pedestal on which we've got um, Britannia instructing the two, two midshipmen, I think, that they should follow the hero's example. And on the pedestal, we've got the list of his victories, and this time we've got a really growly lion. Now, long before Flaxman had completed his work, indeed, even beyond, before he'd been commissioned to do it, Nelson's body, encased in a coffin made from the main mass, well, it arrived back actually in a barrel pickled in rum, but um, they gave him a, main, a coffin made from the main mast of the Orient, the one that we saw blowing up. 
And, uh, you know, there's always a ghastly story. Do you know it? That they brought the body back pickled in rum, and obviously they drained it. You don't want the rum to spill all over the floor. It would make a mess. They drained it into a bath or something and um, extricated Nelson, got him into a tidy coffin. Uh, and then the sailors who had delivered it said, well, what are you going to do with the rum? <laughs> oh, we'll drink it. And that is why rum is always called Nelson's blood in the Navy. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I've heard it from several sources. It's a good legend anyway. Um, they put him in this magnificent coffin and he rests down in the crypt in a superb porphyry sarcophagus originally wrought by Benedetto da Ravezzano for Cardinal Wolsey. Henry VIII had bagged it, obviously, Henry VIII. He had never used it. Um, he was buried in something rather less dramatic, and he's under the crypt, under the floor in Westminster Abbey. But at uh, any rate, Nelson got it, and there he is to this day. And when he fell fatally wounded at Trafalgar, the command of the fleet passed to his friend Cuthbert Collingwood. Having won the victory, the admiral remained at sea despite failing health for the next five years and died at last in his ship, the Ville de Paris, on the 7th of March, 1810. His body was brought back to England, given a state funeral, and buried close to Nelson's sarcophagus. Westminster, uh, Westmacott got that commission too, price set at 4,200. We've got the Admiral lying on the deck of a man of war, clasping a sword, um, his body draped in colours taken from the enemy. Fame kneels over him, and Nelson, surrounded by some... There's Nelson. Bottom right. Surrounded by some rather mawkish um, little, um, little river gods. Little river god for you. Bobbing out over Nelson's arm. Well, you can almost see him in that photo. You'll have to go and look for him. Um, and there are four tiny roundels carved along the line of the ship, showing the genius of man learning to sail the oceans and forge the instruments of war. I do tell you, it's worth looking at these things carefully. Nelson was, Nelson's was the last monument, bar one, to a naval hero. Um, but by this time, a new factor had entered the game. The marbles, rescued from the Parthenon by Lord Elgin, reached England in January 1804. Since Elgin was then a prisoner of war in France, they remained in 50 huge packing cases for three years. Until their owner was freed, half the collection was unpacked and put on display in June 1807. The artists and sculptors were awestruck, overwhelmed by what they saw. 
Benjamin Robert Hayden, that not very successful artist, but incorrigible and incomparable diarist, he brought his friend Henry Fuseli, the Swiss artist, to see them. He recorded in his diary, Never shall I forget his uncompromising enthusiasm. He strode about saying, Oh, the Greeks were gods. The Greeks were gods. However, the members of the Committee of Taste were less impressed. Several of them were members of the Society of Dilettante. Their preference was for the smooth elegance of the Apollo Belvedere, the vigorous roughness, the naturalism, the spontaneity of the Parthenon marbles were alien to them. Even before the sculptures were unpacked, the most vocal of the committee, our friend Richard Payne Knight, was taunting Lord Elgin in public, declaring, without, of course, ever having seen any of the part of the marbles, because he didn't go to the exhibition, uh, that they were of little value. He sneered. You have lost your labor, my Lord Elgin. Your marbles are overrated. They are not Greek. They are Roman of the time of Hadrian. It was going to take the resolute support of the artists, a visit from Canova himself, the deliberations of a special select committee, to win for the marbles the proper appreciation of their true worth and a home in the British Museum. And this isn't the place to tell you that rather long story and its subsequent developments. But by this time, marble supplies in England were running low. The artists were getting extremely worn out by all this having um, competitions. Hayden felt very strongly that too much was being spent on sculpture and not nearly enough on painting, but there's a long, long chunk in his diary which I can see I haven't got time to read to you. The war went on and on. British military activity now concentrated on the invasion of Europe via the Iberian Peninsula. The first attempt ended in defeat at Corona, the death of Sir John Moore on the 16th of January 1809. You know, slowly and sadly we laid him down. Um, though, as at Dunkirk, nearly a century later, a century and a half later, the greater part of the army was successfully evacuated. A memorial to the hero was demanded. Parliament voted for it. The sculptors were ready to compete. At the same time, and this gives us some quite useful information, a committee of subscribers for an additional monument was set up in Glasgow. And to it, James Moore, Sir John Moore's brother, reported that there were models on display and he said which he liked best, which was not the winning one, which went to the younger John Bacon. Now here we've got the hero being lowered into the tomb, supported, lowered down by valor and victory. All right, he didn't win, but he had died fairly gloriously. And the genius of Spain holds the colors aloft. Long, harsh campaign to recover the peninsula began in the summer of 1809. I'm not going to give you a list of all the memorials Scott put up because it would be very trying indeed. 
Parliament voted memorials to all of them and added some more. The one that they added particularly was Cornwallis, who had not died in battle, but who had been governor general in India and a very important sheet anchor during the war. And this was the one that caught the eye of James Moore. There is a monument by Mr. Rossi about to be erected in St. Paul's. I've been to see it, and though it is still unfinished, there is a small model of it in the exhibition. It's in memory of the Marquis Cornwallis. A statue of the Marquis and the robes of the garter is placed on a lofty pedestal, and below there are three allegorical figures. One is a beautiful Hindu, female Hindu looking up at the Marquis. The robes of the garter, which the Marquis wears, give a cumbrous effect to the principal figure, but on the whole, it has a magnificent effect. The very beautiful Indian lady to our right represents the river Ganges, and beside her is a semi-naked turban figure who's meant to be the river Begareth, while the Britannia, holding her trident aloft, has an unusually oriental air. And this monument with that to Nelson was originally placed dominantly at the entrance to the choir. To spell out details of the Britannia's victories, valors, laurel wreaths, and lions on each memorial might be individually intriguing if we were walking round but I don't think it's a good idea in the lecture room. I just want to point out to you three plaques by Chantry, three heroes of the Peninsula campaign. Now, remember, marble is running short. We don't grow marble in England. It has to be imported, and it wasn't coming in. And he's obviously looked very, very carefully at the Parthenon marbles. And each gives a panel with a low-relief scene of the action, with the hero's death standing out in front in higher relief. Here is Captain Houghton, a young man, they're all two young men, cheering on his men to advance uphill with fixed bayonets. There he is, fixed bayonets, the completely appalling battle of Albuera. It produced the shout, Ninth Middlesex, die hard. And that's where you get the phrase, oh, he or she is a good old die hard. Um, Bose falls as his troops breach the walls of Salamanca and the dying Cadogan is supported as his men press on to victory at uh, Victoria. Sir Isaac Brock's tablet by Westmacott is conventional enough, save for one of the mourners. A magnificently, this is Canada, accoutred North American Indian who was called Tecumseh, and it was through him that the defenders of Canada had the support of the Six Nation Indians. The and finally, from Waterloo, we're going 10 years beyond Trafalgar, there is Sir William Punson's memorial 
designed by William Feed, carved by Edmund, Edward Hodges Bailey. Now, he had died at Waterloo. He was riding a horse that he knew wasn't really up to it, but it was the only one he could get. So he ignored the fragility of the animal, still led his men, his horse stumbled through him, and he was speared by a French lancer. They brought that in as a detail in that film, Waterloo. Do you remember with... Um, uh, that's it. Uh, as Napoleon, and I think it was Christopher Plummer, as Wellington. Um, it's, an, it's an interesting film. It's worth seeing. The dying soldier lies naked, supported by the horse who had failed him. He reaches up to take a wreath from victory. There he is. But the horse's head is an absolute direct quote from the Parthenon sculptures. You know, you nip along to the British Museum and have a look at them. Well, it takes years to carve a large marble memorial. The final examples were not installed until the 1830s. Um, and the, uh, I'm afraid the cathedral promptly started charging to come in and look at them. It took Parliament, acting promptly for once, to say this is a disgrace. Old soldiers, old sailors should be able to go and look at these memorials, and they forced the clergy to accept that they had to let people in without charging, I'm happy to say. Sidney Smith was very tart. He said that the public had thought to fit to erect St. Paul's into a receptacle for public monuments. Um, why, you know, sort of, why shouldn't they pay? But he had to give way. And the old soldiers and sailors came in. Now, all that may seem very remote from this year, 2005. What I want you to do is to go and look at those memorials and then go down to the crypt and look at the Falklands War Memorial. This is far more, far broader, far juster, if you like. It gives the names of all of those who fell. But if you look at it carefully and at the surface, you will notice that the name of Colonel Jones has got a pattern because people have reached out to touch it. And you know, even in this century, people need heroes. I want you to think about that when you go upstairs again and look at the other memorials to people who died a couple of centuries ago. Thank you all very much. Thank you so much. I, I wish we had longer, but don't worry, Dr. Saunders is not running away no, immediately. No, no. She's staying. So if you have any questions or want to discuss any of this with her, please do. 
You are all invited to join us for a glass of wine next door, and you can talk informally then. Um, but now I'd just like to say thank you for a super lecture. Um, we've all got now to pop along to St. Paul's no, really and see them in the flesh. If you don't want to um, pay, go to a service. Uh, we, <laughs> we, I thought we might just mention that we know you and we might get in for nothing. Does that not work? Oh. Um, they need the money. Yes. You know, quite seriously, they need the money. Well, do go along. I will be anyway, and I'm sure we'll look at them in, with quite different eyes now. Do join us for a glass of... I, I stress it's not Nelson's blood, it's real wine. <laughs> um, and, and it's just next door. And welcome to the new faces. We do hope you come back to Gresham again. Thank you very much, and thank you, Dr Saunders. Great pleasure. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk